Good morning. Okay, I know there aren't quite as many of you in this room as we'd like to have, but that was a little lame. Good morning. Thank you, that was much better. My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning of the service, especially to those of you who are here for the first time, whether it's in this room or online, we trust you will feel at home with us. So today we have entered Jerusalem with Jesus. It's Palm Sunday, and every year we start Holy Week at this point, but Did you know this Sunday has another name for it? It's sometimes also referred to as Passion Sunday. And in this case, passion refers to suffering. So I think the tension Justin was getting at there in his prayer of confession is is built into how Christians for centuries have approached this Sunday, that there's, there's the waving of palms, there's the triumphal entry, the celebration, the hosannas, but there is this darker side that leads us into the rest of what is to come this week. There is the passion and suffering of Christ. So let's pray before we open our Bibles and plunge into that. Dear God, I pray that the the words of my mouth and the meditations, the reflections, the listening of all of our hearts and minds this morning would be acceptable to you, pleasing to you, you who are a rock and our redeemer. You and you only who have the words of eternal life. So Holy Spirit, encourage us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're reading, we're jumping ahead in John, where we've been looking at the I am sayings of Jesus, and we're jumping ahead, uh, but there's a big I am in the middle of this passage. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up to John chapter 18, For those of you who are here, it'll be on the screen. I guess it'll be on the screen for those of you at home as well, of course, yeah. So we're going to read John chapter 18, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, "'Who is it you want?' "'Jesus of Nazareth,' they replied." I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. Well, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? 
Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning we're going to reflect on the three distinct parts of this passage. And you might think that would lend itself to a three-point sermon. But I'd like to do it a little differently this morning. Don't worry, for those of you who crave that, there will be three points to this sermon. But I wanted to make it a little more interactive today. I wanted to show you three images from movies for each of the points I'll be making and invite you to share out loud. Those of you who are in the room and those of you who are at home can join in on the chat uh, with your own comments. What do these images make you think of? What, What emotion do they evoke in you? What is your response? So just kind of word association. Here's the first image. So anyone know where this is from? On the left, let's start with that. Home Alone, Alone, Macaulay Culkin. And on the right? Close, Norwegian artist, Edvard Munch. One of the more famous modern paintings, The Scream, 1893. So what is this, what do you feel when you see this? What, what does this evoke for you? Fear, okay. Toothache. Toothache? Okay, yeah. <laughs> That's not what I was hoping for. <laughs> Anyone else? Concern? Surprise? Horror. Shock. Okay. So I think this image maybe gets us in the mindset of what the disciples were feeling as what we just read about took place. Shock and horror. Surprise, fear. And... I invite you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. So Jesus had finished his prayer, and he leads them across the valley into a garden. And it wasn't just any prayer. I'd encourage you this week to go back and read John 17, because it contains what may be the most remarkable prayer in the whole Bible. And through it, Jesus invites us into the loving and glorifying relationship he enjoys between his Father and himself. So between God the Father and God the Son, there is this closeness, this intimacy, this love, this, this circle of glory that is like nothing else. And we're invited into it. And Jesus also prays for his disciples, but they still don't understand what's going on. Earlier, they had said to one another, what does Jesus mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more? We don't understand what he's saying. So when Judas and the soldiers and the other officials arrive in the garden, the disciples don't say anything, but we can imagine, as we have, that they're shocked and horrified. And I'm sure they were surprised at Judas betraying Jesus as well, though Jesus had specifically said that that would happen. And they must have been surprised at this detachment of Roman soldiers, too. 
A better translation for that word detachment would really be cohort. And that is a technical military term for a group of soldiers one-tenth the size of a Roman legion. And a legion of Roman soldiers was 6,000 men. So, so we, can, we can know with some certainty that there were around six or 700 highly armed, highly trained soldiers who came to seize Jesus that day. But maybe the biggest shock for the disciples would have been the realization that Jesus was actually going to be arrested, that this thing that they had worried about was really happening right now. He'd always been able to slip away. He'd always been able to escape in the past. And what a shocking injustice this was also. This man, no matter what you believed about him, he had healed the sick, he had taught with great wisdom, he was a man of peace, innocent of any crime. And so the disciples watch as all their plans come crashing down. They were expecting their prayers to be answered. They wanted freedom and salvation for their people, the Israelites. They had found a savior and he was supposed to lead them to victory, to a new promised land. So what was going on? I think many of us can relate to that kind of disappointment. We react the same way when our plans fall apart, and they have like never before over the past year. First of all, we're surprised when it happens. But then we feel a kind of despair. We grow cynical in the long run. And when we suffer an injustice because someone has betrayed us, we risk becoming bitter and resentful. We blame other people, and we may feel that God has let us down or even abandoned us. There's a distance and there's a coldness that creeps into our relationship with him. But here in John 18, before the shock and horror of the disciples can turn into discontent and anger, something amazing happens. And this is the second point in the action. And I've got an image. Well, actually, I've got two that may help us. So the first one, anyone recognize these guys? That's such an obscure pop culture reference, I know. <laughs> anyone help me out here? Who is that? Steve Rogers. Steve Rogers on the left and on the right, I guess. But on the right, clearly known by another name. Captain America. Okay, let's go right to the next image. <laughs> I don't know, maybe this one you'll recognize more quickly. Aragorn. Aragorn. By what name on the left would we know Aragorn? That's Strider on the left, in the corner of the pub, in the dark. Nothing much, kind of threatening looking, but more of a uh, someone you want to stay away from. Nothing, nothing to worry about too much. And on the right, Aragorn again, in his glory. The return of the king. The sword that was broken has been reforged, if you know Lord of the Rings. So what do these two images evoke for you? What do you see going on? Maybe we can flick back to the first one as well. 
Transformation, absolutely. Anything else? What's on the left, what's on the right? What, what is the transformation from what to what? Ordinary to extraordinary. Anything in the chat, Alice? It's coming. Okay. They're, oh, they're behind. Anything else? Fulfillment? Kitty. Weakness into strength. Let's go forward to the thank you. Maybe something is hidden and then it's revealed. So let's go with hidden power revealed for what this could evoke in us. And we see in John 18 something like that. We see Jesus reveal himself from ordinary, from Jesus of Nazareth to extraordinary. He goes out and he asks the authorities and the soldiers, who is it you want? Well, they want Jesus the carpenter. They want Jesus who comes from Nazareth that hick town, a place they would have looked down on. Nothing like Jerusalem, nothing at all like Rome. Jesus replies, I am he. And so he acknowledges his weakness. He says that, yes, I am that simple man from nowhere. But in the original language, what it really says is simply, I am. Ego emi in the Greek. And we've heard Jesus say this over the past few weeks. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Here it's just two words. I am. But they are the most powerful two words in the Bible because they are the name of God, Yahweh. Remember in Exodus 3, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, he called himself, I am. So what Jesus is saying here is, I am the Lord. I am the personal God who calls you. I am the transcendent God. I am the all-powerful God. I am the creator of heaven and earth. The same voice with which I speak to you is the voice that thundered from Mount Sinai and that will cry out in pain from Mount Calvary. He's telling his disciples and he's telling us that even though it's dark, even though you're struggling, even though you're shocked and horrified, I am with you and I always will be. And I love this next part. As he reveals his power, something happens. They all, they draw back and they all fall to the ground. Did you pick up on that kind of curious piece? It's like this boom hits all those soldiers and they are literally knocked off their feet by the words of Jesus. And this is not a movie. This is not fiction. It's not Captain America or Thor with his hammer or Aragorn's military power or Gandalf's magic. John was there and wrote this book, the Gospel of John, as a historical account. And he says it really happened. All of them witnessed the power and the glory of Jesus, the Son of God. It was a glimpse, and yet it stood for so much more. But Jesus is not done yet. As we saw last week, he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, for us, 
and he does it willingly. He says, no one can take it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. So this is the authority of Jesus at whose feet every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue declare that he is Lord. But first, he must submit to the will of his Father. If you don't see Jesus like that, like the I am, with the power that's revealed for a moment in this passage, but will be revealed more fully to come, if you don't see him as the, as the true power behind the universe, behind your life, the power to change, the power to be made new, I'd encourage you to ask God to show you that. Jesus puts the question to all of us in this passage. What do you want? Who are you looking for? He's going to ask Mary the very same question next Sunday on Easter morning. And he's pointing to himself as he asks the question. He's saying, I'm the one you need in your life. Could you believe him? Maybe you're here this morning, you're watching from a place of unbelief or of real doubt. What do you have to lose? It's a bet worth making. It's a bet by which you could win everything. Or maybe you're coming from a place of belief this morning, but you've never been knocked off your feet by Jesus. In that case, I'd encourage you to pray to God and to say, to ask him to show you who he truly is, to raise your expectations, to reveal his power in your life, because there's nothing better in the world, nothing. And do you see what Jesus does here with this authority, this power? In verse 8, he tells this Roman and Jewish army to let his disciples go. Like Moses told Pharaoh to let his people go. This will be the new and the forever exodus. And they do, they let them go. Jesus is the only one they take. Again, he's the good shepherd and he says, I have not lost one. And he promises no one will snatch anyone who is under his care, under his protection from him. Is that an anxiety that you have in your life right now? Is there someone right now who you think might be taken from you? Someone you're losing? Or maybe someone you've lost already? Or are you anxious about leaving someone you know you have to, you know it's right, but you're afraid for them. Jesus knows us like no one else ever will. And as we learn to listen to his voice and to follow him, there is no power in the universe, not this pandemic, not our painful disappointments, not our despair and anxiety, not our cynical avoidance, not any setback, any sickness, not cancer, not even death itself that can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. He will watch over you. He is the only one who can. Could you trust him? 
Now we come to the third point in the action here. And it's, it's quite a different image. Okay, so Home Alone, pretty good for a family movie night. This one, not so much. Anyone recognize this actor, for starters? Liam Neeson, that's right. And this ranks as the all-time iconic moment for revenge movies, apparently. He says something, and the next slide will reveal it. So in this film, his daughter has been kidnapped, and he is trained, I don't know, by the CIA or someone, and he has certain skills. And he says that he is going to come after the kidnappers. And where's the quote? I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. Again, not, not good for a family movie night. This one wasn't too subtle. What does this evoke for you? What, what are the themes here? Revenge is my interest. Revenge, absolutely. Determination? Determination? Yeah. Yeah, there's something... I almost said admirable. That's not where I wanted to go, actually. <laughs> um, justice. justice? Yeah, for sure. Retaliation. In John 18, Peter isn't ready to trust Jesus. He takes out his sword and he retaliates. This is the most natural human response, to protect someone you love. It's, it's, it starts as a good determination, as a pursuit of justice. You lash out against a threat. But it's also a power grab on Peter's part. Peter takes it on himself. He's a man of action. We've seen that again and again through the Gospels. Maybe he can help Jesus. Maybe he can rescue Jesus. Maybe Jesus needs him right now. Christians have a terrible track record when it comes to power. We may start off wanting power so we can serve others or to do the right thing for justice, but power seems to always lead us astray. It corrupts us. And every superhero movie, to go back to Captain America, everyone that's successful taps into our fantasies about having power and being able to get what we want magically, and especially to get back at those who have wronged us, to get revenge. And, and that's why in superhero movies, the transformation subplot, the, the moment when Steve Rogers becomes Captain America, or Peter Parker becomes Spider-Man and go to high school and, and really deal with those bullies, it grabs us. But Jesus is different. My grandparents and my great-grandparents were missionaries in China. When I was an undergraduate at the University of Toronto, I started reading about the history of Christian missions, and my, my grandpa and I would talk about it. One book I remember, still vividly remember reading and being shocked by, accused missionaries of complicity 
in the violence and racism of colonialism. It said that they relied on Western power and military strength to spread the Christian message of love and peace. And it was entirely cynical about that. And I remember as we talked about it, my grandpa got emotional. He said, gunboats. Just one word, gunboats. That was the problem, he said. He said, we all had the authority of Jesus, but some of us trusted the wrong kind of power. We trusted the gunboats. And then he explained that when the Chinese communists took power in 1949, they kicked out all the missionaries. They retaliated. And the church in China disappeared. He said, we lost everything, those of us who had been missionaries. When Peter retaliates in John 18, Jesus tells him, put your sword away. There's a tradition within Christian history called the Anabaptist tradition. And this is the moment when Jesus rebukes Peter, who pulls out a sword, and in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus heals the servant's ear. This is the moment that inspires the Anabaptist tradition. And if you're a Baptist, these are two separate, distinct things. In 1524, a man by the name of Conrad Grebel, an emerging leader in the Reformation, the Swiss Reformation in Zurich, wrote these words. True Christians are sheep among wolves. They employ neither worldly sword nor war, since with them killing is absolutely renounced. They do not know vengeance. Their hearts overflow with peace. Their mouths speak peace, and they walk in the way of peace. And as you may know, Conrad Grable College at the University of Waterloo continues in that tradition with its peace and conflict studies. Mennonites are perhaps the biggest branch of the Anabaptist tradition. Now, we don't have time today to explore a Christian view of war and of violence, but whether you agree with the pacifism of the Anabaptists or not, I think we can acknowledge that the Anabaptist tradition seeks to be faithful to Christ. And at a time right now today when a considerable part of North American Christianity, the evangelical wing of the church in particular, has given itself to the pursuit of power, political power in particular. The church, I think, has a lot to learn from someone like Conrad Grable. The power of Jesus comes from giving himself up, giving himself away, and it's hard for us to follow him in that. My grandparents were heartbroken when they had to leave China. They were forced to leave a country they loved and to which they'd given their lives. And the door closed on Christian faith in China. The church there was pronounced dead. Communism eradicated religion. For 30 years, the missionaries thought they'd failed. But then... Around 1980, reports began to surface that not only had the church survived in China, but it had grown, grown beyond the wildest expectations of those missionaries. And that there were, in fact, millions of Christians in China. And our best guess today is that there are 100 million, possibly 150 million Christians in China. 
God is always at work. God is always on the move when we lay down our own power, when we seek his will, when we seek the path of peace rather than our own path. After World War II, my grandpa taught New Testament in a theological college in Wuxi, which is just west of Shanghai. That was before the communist victory. And I traveled to Wuxi when I was a student in China in 1993. During my visit there, I wandered into a church just randomly. And inside, I met an old man who was praying. And he greeted me. At that point, my Chinese was pretty good and we were able to have a conversation. And I told him about my grandfather, who took the Chinese name Mao Keli, because it sounds like McLeod. And to my amazement, he told me that he'd known my grandfather and that his sister had actually studied with him. And I asked if his sister was still alive. I thought maybe I could meet her. I'm still here for another day or two. And he told me that she was not. He said she had been executed for being a Christian, that everyone in her class had died for their faith during the Cultural Revolution. Jesus gives himself up to be arrested and goes to the cross so that every Christian who has suffered persecution down through history, so that every one of us here today who suffers in whatever circumstance you're facing will know that he is a man of sorrow. He is with us in our pain. But even more, he gives himself up, he lays down his life and goes to the cross to defeat death, to overcome evil. Jesus commands Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink from the cup the Father has given me? What is he talking about? What's this cup? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup is always a symbol of God's wrath on human evil. It's an image of divine justice poured out on injustice. It's a promise that the world will be restored, that every tear will be stopped, that all injustice will end. Jesus laid down his life and paid it all so that we could be forgiven and come home to God. And this coming Friday, we remember that most of all. In John 18, we've seen the shock and horror of it, that Jesus is arrested, that Jesus is going to die. And we are reminded that God surprises us. His plans are different from our plans. We've seen the power of Jesus, power that was hidden. We've seen it revealed. And we've seen the temptation to retaliate, to take things into our own hands, to rely on our own devices. We've seen Jesus leads us a different way. In the end, Jesus wants us to know how much he loves us. He wants us to know there is nothing more true in the world than his love. And as we enter into the darkness of this week, Holy Week, we cling to that hope, that hope that we have in Christ. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for your obedience to your Father. We thank you for your power, which is made perfect in weakness. 
We thank you for your faithfulness in pouring out your life when that was the greatest injustice, when that was wrong, and yet you willingly laid down your life so that we could live, so that we could have the hope of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection. Would you help us to grasp that hope? Would you help us to hear your voice, to receive your grace today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.